Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and to him and through him are all things, to whom be the power forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we typically have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us through His Word. Scripture says that once a believer, once a person puts their faith alone in Christ alone, trusts in Him, then at that moment we have eternal salvation that can never be lost. But once we sin, after we're saved, our fellowship, that ongoing rapport with God related to the uh, sanctifying or spiritual growth-producing ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is shut down. And it is recovered or restored when we trust in Christ, I mean, excuse me, when we confess our sins, when we admit our sins to the Father in terms of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word is absolute truth. You revealed it to us through God the Holy Spirit who wrote through and guided the thinking of the writers of Scripture, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. And it is through that inspiration that there was a guarantee of the infallibility and inerrancy of your word. And so we study your word because that is the way in which we come to understand who you are, what your plan for history is, We come to understand how we can have a relationship with you and how we can orient to reality. We need to learn the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ, that in our lives we can reflect uh, his thinking and thus glorify you. So, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might uh, be mindful that this is your revelation to us of uh, future things, that we are to live in light of the future, understanding your plan and purpose, and that as we study these things, God the Holy Spirit would make applicable to each of us the things that we need to learn, the things that we need to apply to our own lives. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. As we have been studying in the uh, book of Revelation, we have seen that there are series of judgments that God brings on the human race through the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 8 begins the second series of these judgments, the seal, I mean, excuse me, the trumpet judgments, which follow the seal judgments. Uh, you don't realize this. I'm terribly distracted today. There's a buzz right behind me, which sounds like my head is in a hive of bees. So some of you can hear it, some of you can't, but it's incredibly distracting, so I'm having to uh, block everything this morning, and hopefully that will work. Okay, Revelation chapter 8 deals with this second series of judgments, and we began last time looking at the first verse. This is last time in terms of the last lesson in Revelation, not the last two weeks when we had our election special. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, we were told that when the Lamb, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, again, this is the favorite term that the Apostle John has for the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. It speaks of his role as our sacrifice on the cross. As John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming down to the Jordan, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Somebody is praying very effectively this morning for the sound just stopped. I want to know who that person is. I have an election you need to be praying for. So the Lamb is John's favorite term. 27 times in the book of Revelation, John refers to Jesus by this title. It is the focal point of the, the, the role of Christ that lies behind these judgments. We studied the section in Revelation 4 and 5, which is a heavenly scene as God the Father is on the throne. In his right hand is a scroll resting. Before his throne there are the four living creatures who are specific angels, and then there are the 24 elders who represent the church-age believers resurrected, raptured, rewarded in the presence of God. And there is a search going on in heaven and on earth for someone qualified to take this scroll from the hand of God. The scroll represents the title deed for planet earth. It is the right to rule the planet. And none can be found, and we studied where the, it is depicted that John becomes so upset, emotionally distraught, that he is weeping uncontrollably, and an angel comes forward and touches him and says, Stop weeping, for we have one who is qualified. It is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. It is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who is the only one qualified to take that scroll because of what he did on the cross, fulfilling his destiny to redeem mankind and to purchase from every tribe, tongue, nation a people for himself. 
And so it is the Lord Jesus Christ who steps forward. The Lamb comes forward, takes the scroll, and beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, he begins to open the scroll. It has, it is sealed with seven seals. And so he begins to open the scroll, and we have the seven uh, seal judgments, six of which are described in Revelation chapter 6. And then the seventh seal is open, revealing the next series of judgment. So when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, we're told there was silence in heaven for half an hour. In the last lesson, I focused on the response we should have to prophecy. And I went through the book of Daniel, showing how different people, different individuals, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belshazzar, Daniel, others, how they responded to prophecy, showing that the role of prophecy in Scripture is not to uh, somehow satisfy our curiosity about the future, to tell us what's going to happen. Prophecy in Scripture is not about telling individuals uh, how they should make right decisions. That prophecy is about explaining God's plan and purposes for Israel, for the church, and how God is going to ultimately resolve human history, resolve the problems of evil, resolve the problems of injustice. And prophecy is about the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's plans and purposes for human history. And I pointed out that several times in the Old Testament, there is this response to the revelation of prophecy, uh, this response of silence, this response of awe. In Daniel, Daniel is upset. Now, it's not like a lot of modern evangelicals who hear some prophecy message and go home all stimulated and they open up the paper and they're trying to do a lot of uh, newspaper exegesis. Where are we on the timeline? Is the first beast Obama? Is the second beast uh, uh, Sarah Palin? Is the uh, who, who's the woman with the uh, stars around her head? Is that Hillary? I mean, you, you get all kinds of silly things that that people try to do to figure out where we are in the book of Revelation. And we're nowhere in the book of Revelation, for that is a future book that begins, the prophetic section begins only after the church t- t- today is raptured. And so we have a different response that we should have, and that is one of awe and silence, because what we're witnesses to is the ultimate judgment of God on the human race for their rebellion, for their rejection of him, and for their becoming entrenched in this arrogant hostility to God and his plan. As we have seen in our study of Revelation, the scenes shift from chapter to chapter, and often people, when they read Revelation, they think, well, how can you make sense of this? Well, you have to understand how things are working, just like watching a TV show where you have one scene taking place in one location at one time, and then it shifts to another scene that may even be earlier or maybe at the same time as the first scene, and then you have a shift to another scene that shifts in time. And if you, you're not aware of what's happening when and what's happening at the same time, then it's easy to become confused. Chapters 4 to 5 take place in heaven. They are a prelude to what happens in chapter 6. They set the stage. We learn about the scroll and the seals on the scroll. Chapter 6 explains these uh, the first six seal judgments. Chapter 7 then takes us to heaven, happens at a 
the same time as the first six seal judgments telling us about God's grace during the tribulation period. And then chapter chapters 8 through 9 take place after chapter 6, focusing again on the events on the earth, the outworking of divine judgment. As I have said, the proper response that we see in Scripture is, the, is silence as we look at the outworking of God's Judgment, Zephaniah 1.7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, we haven't done a technical study of the day of the Lord yet, but let me just say it is a term used in the Old Testament to describe the judgment of God on different people. It can be historic, but it is primarily used in terms of the future judgment of God It is used in a broader sense to refer to the entire tribulation period and in a more narrow sense to refer also to the final part of that judgment that the events of the Armageddon campaign. And so as these judgments of the end times are anticipated, Zephaniah calls for silence. Psalm 76, 8 and 9 again Uh, we see the same principle as judgments from God is revealed, the earth feared and was still. Habakkuk 2.20 again, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now this is a particularly significant passage because it shows that the the temple here is a heavenly temple, and what we are going to see in the first seal judgment is related, or prior to that, the, the prayers of the saints going up to heaven is related to the heavenly temple. And so here we see this pictured prophetically in Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. Now as we come to this chapter and we continue our study, we read in verse 2 that the next, that when that seventh seal is opened, there are seven trumpet judgments which are revealed. John writes in verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, if you notice, in chapter 6, when the seals are broken, it is the Lamb who breaks the seals. There are no angels involved in uh, the breaking of the seals. But when the seventh seal is broken by the Lamb, then the subsequent judgments, the trumpet judgments, are executed by angels. And then when we come to the bold judgments, they too will be executed by angels. And what we see here is that these uh, judgments are represented by seven angels, seven angels that stand before God. This is a unique group of angels. We only know of one angel specifically in Scripture that is said to stand before God, and that is the angel Gabriel, according to Luke 1.19. Now, the Apocrypha, which was the uh, various books that were written in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, mostly having to do with uh, Jewish history that were never accepted as part of the Old Testament by the Jews and only became accepted by the Roman Catholic Church and some other Eastern Orthodox Syrian churches, other groups like that, in the, in the period after the uh, Protestant Reformation. 
in two of those books, First Enoch and Tobit, there are other angels mentioned, seven as a matter of fact, who stand before God, Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Sarakael, and Remael. Now, you may have heard of some of those names before, but they are not part of the accepted canon of Scripture. The only one of those that we know of uh, for sure that is uh, uh, established by the, the Scripture is uh, Gabriel. And as I said, he has a specific role in relationship to carrying out uh, God's revelation and explaining it. It is Gabriel who appears to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9 in order to explain or interpret the dreams and the visions that Daniel has. It is Gabriel who comes and appears to Mary and explains to her what is about to happen in terms of the virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Michael, on the other hand, is the angel that is most closely associated with the outworking of God's plan to Israel. Michael is mentioned as an archangel. He's the only archangel mentioned. He is mentioned in Daniel 10, 13, and Daniel 12, 1, and he'll be mentioned in Revelation, in Revelation 12, 7. So these are the only two angels that we know of by name in the Scripture. So these are... These are seven angels. One would, I believe, include Gabriel, but we don't know who the other six are. They stand before God, and they have a specific mission in carrying out God's judgment on man. This is one of the primary roles of angels in history, is carrying out divine judgment. And this is one of their primary roles in the book of Revelation in the future, is they are the ones who oversee and carry out the judgment of God. And I believe that this is part of their role from the Supreme Court of Heaven. They are record keepers within the Supreme Court of Heaven, and those they are the ones who maintain the testimony of God in relationship to the execution of his justice on the earth. Now, as we come to this chapter, just to locate it within the flow of Revelation, for those of you who still have a little trouble trying to put these events together, the rapture of the church takes place first. It's somewhere between chapter 3 and chapter 4. It's pictured by the open door in heaven in Revelation 4.1 and the voice calling to John to come up to heaven. Then we have this heavenly scene in chapters 4 and 5, then the seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6. And the seal judgments are then followed by the trumpet judgments, and these takes, take place during the first part of the tribulation. The seal judgments probably during the first 21 months, followed by the trumpet judgments in the second 21-month uh, period. This takes up the first half of the tribulation period. So it looks something like this. There's the rapture. We have these tribulation broken down into two uh, three-and-a-half-year periods. The seal judgments and the trumpet judgments take place during the first half. Then there is the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist will establish uh, an idol in the uh, temple in Jerusalem so that uh, men will worship him as God. And then this begins the final period of the tribulation when we have the seven bowl judgments that lead up to the Armageddon campaign and the final destruction 
of the Antichrist, the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom of man, and the destruction and judgment of Satan. Everything in the tribulation period drives towards that end. It is the time period when God is finally judging uh, the uh, evil cosmic system of Satan and judging Satan. It is when God finally answers the prayers of his people down through the uh, centuries to bring justice on earth to be our defender in terms of injustice and undeserved suffering that comes about from living in Satan's uh, cosmic system. And we see this depicted in the next two verses. Uh, Revelation 8.3 says, Another angel, this is another of the same kind, came and stood at the altar. So we are in the heavenly temple. As I stated earlier, the earthly tabernacle and temple were built on the archetypical, the primary uh, pattern of a heavenly temple as indicated in Hebrews chapter 10, that Moses' blueprint for the tabernacle, which becomes the blueprint for the temple, is based on a heavenly archetype. And so there is a heavenly altar that is comparable to the altar of incense that is in the tabernacle and the temple. So he sees another angel that comes and stands at this altar. He is holding a golden censer. A censer is a bowl or object that is used to carry hot coals, and it was from these hot coals that would come from the uh, brazen altar that were brought into the tabernacle and temple to light the incense at the altar of incense, which was a picture of intercessory prayer, prayer ascending to God. So this angel comes forward holding a golden censer, and much incense is given to him. The abundance of the incense relates to the abundance of prayer that this pictures. This is a real event, but it is a, an event that pictures the intercessory petitions of saints on the earth who are praying that God would bring an end to the satanic kingdom on the earth. So much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. Now in the Old Testament in the tabernacle there was the altar of incense that had the four horns on it, horns picturing power, and the high priest would come in and he would put blood on the four horns of the altar, and then there would be incense on the altar, and he would bring in the coals from the uh, brazen altar outside to light the incense. So uh, this was the situation when two of Aaron's sons violated that principle and offered strange fire. This was that event when they came in and it was unauthorized. It didn't come from the brazen altar outside, and the result was that God took their life instantly for violating his plan. Now, this is another picture of this same uh, altar. This is a uh, an altar set up in the what was called the Tabernacle of the Wilderness in Israel. This was a, uh, a mock-up that was built in order to show what the tabernacle Looked like, and so this this depicts it. This pictures the censers and the uh, incense 
uh, bowls that were used for burning the incense. And when the high priest would come into the uh, would come into the holy place, and he would put the incense and light the incense, burn the incense on the altar of incense, then the cloud of smoke would then fill the entire area within the holy place, specifically filling the area of the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And it was in that uh, uh, smoke-filled room that he would uh, minister before God. And the purpose was to cloud, to hinder his vision so that he didn't look directly upon the Ark of the Covenant when, when the high priest came in that one time a week, I mean one time a year when he came in for Yom, Yom Kippur. And so he comes in and he brings in the, the altar of incense. Now this altar of incense is related to two previous passages in the book of Revelation. Back in Revelation chapter 6, just the previous chapter where we looked at the two groups of people that were saved in the uh, first group, which represents, I mean, the second group, which represents the martyrs of the tribulation, we read, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Remember, we've studied that this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, depicts the hardened uh, people on the earth who will never respond to God's grace, who are dead set against uh, any rule of God upon the earth, and despite all of God's grace, all of his, uh, the extension of the message of the gospel throughout the tribulation period, this group will never respond. There are others who will respond during the tribulation period, and we've seen that the number who are saved during the tribulation period is depicted as without number, a countless number. And so you have this picture of the martyrs, and that comes out of uh, Revelation chapter uh, chapter five, verse eight, the fifth seal judgment. When he had taken the book, the, or, yes, when he had taken the book, or excuse me, it relates it to five eight and uh, as well as uh, uh, chapter six. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. So these bowls of incense are carried by the 24 elders. Church age, these are the church-age believers functioning as priests in the temple in heaven. Now, they're not functioning as intercessors. They're simply uh, holding these bowls. They represent the prayers of the saints during the tribulation period. And those during the tribulation period are the martyrs who are depicted as being under the altar, and their prayers are going up, and their prayers are for justice, that God would finally bring justice upon all of these evildoers, the earth dwellers who are persecuting God's people during the tribulation, during the tribulation period. And so there is a direct connection in verse 3 of chapter 8, and the prayers of the saints in Revelation 7, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, and the prayers of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6, 
verses 10 and 11, and the, alt, the, the bowls of incense in chapter 5. So this thread ties these chapters together, and it is a picture of the fact that God is answering his prayer. Now, many times through history, God's people have prayed, both Old Testament Jewish saints and New Testament church-age believers have prayed that God would bring justice. They live in uh, unjust under unjust governments. They live in uh, empires that persecuted believers. They live at times when they have been treated in uh, harsh ways by various governments, and they have prayed that God would bring judgment, and yet they would give their lives as martyrs, and there would apparently be no change during that uh, time on the earth. And that is because God has a plan and a purpose. And it is not God's plan to bring judgment on the evildoers at the time that we would want it to be. It's not going to bring it, bring it about today. And we learn from this that God has a priority system in the way in which he answers our prayers. And his answer to our prayers is built upon his his purpose in history. And his purpose in history is to uh, bring about the salvation of as many people as he can. God desires that all men be saved. And it's only when the number of salvation reaches its completion that then God will uh, answer the prayers of the saints and bring judgment upon those who are in rebellion against him. And this is what we see depicted in Revelation 6, uh, 11. In God's answer to these prayers of the martyrs from the fifth seal, he says that they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. God answers his prayers, but they may not be according to our our timetable. So there will be a time in which he does bring about the answer to those prayers. Now as we look, continue to look at the passage here in Revelation chapter 8, we go to verse 4, and we read, "...in the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angels' hands." There are several key passages in the Old Testament that connect the incense to prayer. For example, in Psalm 141, verse 2, we read, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands in the evening offering. So as the smoke ascends from the incense, it is a picture of our prayers going up before God. In Second Chronicles, chapter 30, there is the statement, Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place. That would be his heavenly temple. The context of this has to do with the revival that occurred in Israel under King Hezekiah. Prior to King Hezekiah's rule, there had been much apostasy in the southern kingdom, and they had been given over to uh, the worship of various idols and the building of these uh, worship centers up in the uh, groves and trees and the hills where they would worship uh, various fertility gods and goddesses, and the people in the southern kingdom had become apostate. But under the leadership of Hezekiah, they turned. Hezekiah 
had a turning point in his life when he realized that he needed to uh, be on the right side of history and that he needed to truly repent, which just means to change your mind about God and his spiritual life. And God answered his prayers, gave him uh, extra years of life rather than dying the sin unto death. And the first thing he did was to cleanse the temple and to restore the proper worship of God within the temple. This is recorded in Second Chronicles chapters 29 and 30. And at the end of the tremendous celebration that the southern kingdom had for the cleansing and restoration of the temple, they reinstituted the observance of the Passover meal. And Jews came from the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom in order to participate in this uh, restoration of the observance of Passover. And that's the context of Second Chronicles uh, chapter 30. As the people come together for Passover for the beginning of the week-long celebration of the Feast of Firstfruits, then there was prayer from the spiritual leaders of the people, the priests and the Levites, and the prayer of dedication that they have for this Passover uh, event is ascends to heaven. So the prayers of the saints are pictured as ascending to heaven before God. In Revelation 8.5 we read, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire of the altar, and he threw it to the earth. Now fire is used in the scripture to depict judgment. Fire is that which cleanses and purifies. And because of evil, because of sin upon the earth, the earth, the kingdom of man on the earth needs to be judged and cleansed and purified before the Lord Jesus Christ can return and establish his kingdom upon the earth. He has to bring to conclusion the whole problem of evil in human history. And so this angel who takes the censer pours the fire on the earth. This is a picture of the judgment that comes upon the earth at the end of the tribulation period. It is a judgment of fire. And this is the depiction of what John the Baptist announced regarding Jesus Christ, that the one who comes after me will baptize with water and fire. The water refers to water baptism, and the fire relates to the purification that takes place at the end times during the uh, tribulation period as the earth is judged and purified and made ready for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ upon the earth. We see pictures of this in the Old Testament. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2, we have a similar type of prophetic setting. He spoke to the man clothed in linen. This is God speaking to the man clothed in linen and says, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim. Fill your hands with the coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. This was a prophecy related to God's judgment on Jerusalem at the time of the uh, 586 B.C., the first time that Israel was, or the southern kingdom was judged for their uh, idolatry and rebellion against God. So as we come to the uh, conclusion of this section from verses 3 down through 5, let's just highlight a couple of things that we 
uh, need to highlight to understand the key doctrine in this section. These verses focus on God's answer to prayer. So the first thing we've seen is that the chapter draws the connection between the prayers of the martyrs in the fifth seal judgment to the execution of these judgments. The principle is God answers prayer, but he answers prayer according to his timetable and according to his plan. This is seen in terms of the answer to his prayer in in, uh, Revelation 6, 10, and 11, that they needed to wait a while longer until the number of their brethren that were killed had been completed. So there has to be, there is a specific number of saved in history, and when the last one who will and would be saved is saved, then there is the end. This is not related to the rapture. It's related to the tribulation period as well. The third thing we note is that there is a priority in God's plan. Uh, He will deal with the judgment of evil, injustice, and suffering, but what takes precedence is his desire of salvation. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's primary goal is to have the gospel made clear so that all who will will come to the cross and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So God has a priority in his plan, and we have to understand that even in our own lives, that when we pray for certain things, First John tells us we are to pray according to his will, and that relates to his plan and his priorities. We may have and usually do have a different timetable and a different set of priorities. God is working things out. We may be praying intensely, and there are many believers who are praying intensely for this particular uh, election. It is, this, is, this year has been one of the strangest years that anyone can count in any living memory or historical memory. We've seen oil go up to almost $150 a barrel. We've paid over $4 a gallon for gas just three or four months ago. And yesterday I saw gas for $1.95. So we're paying less than half what we were paying. We've never seen these kinds of swings. We've seen the various bailouts that Congress has uh, voted recently. We've seen uh, the decline of the stock market by uh, 30 or 40 percent of its value since its high point a year ago. We've seen the strangest presidential election to think that, that people in this country would even uh, nominate someone who is such an avowed Marxist as we have, even though he hides it very well. And people are deceived by that. And the alternative that we have isn't just a whole lot better. We have a option between a socialist and a worse socialist and Marxist. We have uh, people making political choices and getting involved in political uh, alliances that we would never have suspected two or three years ago. The very fact that we have someone with such a dubious background and with such close personal connections uh, to uh, personal family connections to Islam in the wake of 9-11 is just absolutely astounding how we can have a man in the White House have any level of objectivity with, with those kinds of personal connections is beyond me. 
But just because we have somebody who's a Christian doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any better. The current president that we have comes out of a liberal Methodist background, and he uh, buys the lie that most people do, that Islam is a, a peaceful religion. And, and it's not. There's a man in our congregation here who has a next-door neighbor who is a so-called moderate, non-observing Muslim, and he has befriended this man and has developed a good relationship with this individual in the hopes that uh, eventually he can uh, share the gospel with him. And in that process, as, they've, as he's asked him numerous questions about what he believes about Islam, he brought it to a head one day and he said, okay, so you're not an observant Muslim and you're, uh, you're not uh, a radical, you're just, just a moderate, but let's just say uh, that an event comes where there is a specific jihad called against all, uh, all Americans and that all Muslims in America are called to uh, take the lives of the Christians in America. What would you have to do? He said, I would beg you to become a Muslim, and if you don't, I will kill you. And that's from a so-called moderate so non-observant Muslim, we have to understand the nature of Islamic belief, that if you're not a part of the what they call the uh, Dar es Salaam, the House of Peace, then you are a member of the House of War. None of the rules that apply to those who are from the House of Peace, which is Islam, apply to those outside. It's the end justifies the means for those who aren't part of Dar es Salaam, and they can say anything or do anything or make any kind of promise or enter into any kind of contract with those who are not Muslims, and it's not binding as long as ultimately it's being used to uh, further the goals and the agenda of the Muslim religion. And we have to have objectivity about this. It's not that Americans are engaged in a holy war, but we have to understand that radical Islam is engaged in a holy war, and we have to uh, engage them and approach them on that basis. And to have a president that is uh, not aware of that is going to result in making bad decisions from a position of ignorance, and we already have that. So we have people who want to go to another president who has family members who are, uh, who are Muslim, and he ha- does not have an, a level of objectivity uh, to bring in his uh, decision-making in relationship to that. And not only that, but his 20 years of being under the teaching of a, of a Marxist pastor, and that's what black liberation theology is. It's not biblical. It came out of uh, Latin American liberation theology, which is Marxist to its core. And either we have a man who sat there for 20 years and was so ignorant of Marxism and socialism that he didn't recognize it when he heard it, which is terrible. If you're going to be president of the United States, you don't know, you can't spot Marxism and socialism when you hear it. Or he does know what it is, and that's his personal belief and his personal agenda. In either case, it is not only antagonistic to the Constitution of the United States and its history, but it is destructive. Socialism never has worked, and socialism never will work. Socialism is just the inclination of the sin nature 
to have somebody else do the work and we're just going, going to benefit from it. It is that area of irresponsibility toward which all human beings are prone because of the sin nature. And so we have a nation now that wants to completely give themselves over to this kind of thinking in a much more radical way than we ever have before. And it has nothing to do with selfishness or being unpatriotic. Don't you just love the way that, uh, uh, that it has been portrayed, such 1984 Orwellian doublespeak, that if you don't want to pay more taxes, you're not patriotic. And if you're against socialism, it's because you're selfish. Well, that's just, that's just absurd, but people can't uh, think critically anymore and can't understand these things, and that's the same kind of thing that happens in the tribulation period. Those who are the earth dwellers have their thinking so aligned to the kingdom of man that that's what they must promote. So we live in a world today that foreshadows in many ways that which will take place during the tribulation period. And so we pray that things would go a certain way. And they don't go that way. So we can relax and trust in God that he is working out his plan and his purposes, and he will eventually uh, make all things right. And that doesn't occur until you get into the tribulation period and the outworking of these uh, seven uh, these judgments, these three series of seven judgments each as God purifies the human race, purifies the earth so that Jesus Christ can return and establish his kingdom. And until then, there will be no utopia on the earth. Politics and politicians can never provide the answer. They can never supply real hope. So don't get your uh, hopes dashed in this election. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in God, and so we can relax more than anyone else because we know God is in control and we can have peace no matter what happens because our happiness, our stability is not based on what happens next Tuesday. It's never based on what happens in the political realm. Scripture says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, for the arm of flesh is weak, but blessed is the man who trusts in God. And it is only by orienting our thinking to the Lord Jesus Christ and his revealed word that we can truly understand what is going on around us. Well, next time we'll come back and we'll begin our study of the judgments themselves, beginning with the first trumpet judgment of hail and fire, and we'll see how these relate to Old Testament events in bringing all of history together in God's plan, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed these things to us, even though we will not be witnesses upon the earth when these events occur. We understand their importance because they help us orient to events in our own time, in our own lives, and to think in terms of the principles that are laid out here in Scripture. We know you are a God who answers prayer and that we are to pray according to your will and according to the plans and purposes that are revealed to us in your word. And we understand that uh, it may not be your will for this nation to survive as a free nation. It may not be your will for this nation to survive where people have the true freedom to control their destiny, to make decisions regarding their own 
possessions, their own wealth, their own earnings, and it may not be your will for this nation to continue to have the prosperity that it has enjoyed as a result of the uh, principles of free market economy that were embedded within the uh, founding documents of this nation. But, Father, as you bring uh, discipline upon this nation and many other nations, we know that this is uh, working itself out according to your plan and purposes to bring about the final uh, destiny that you have determined for the human race, which will eventually culminate in the tribulation period and the final judgment on the cosmic system, the world system, and on those in the human race who have rejected you and those who have rebelled against you. Father, we're thankful that we are taught in Scripture about your love, your grace, that you demonstrated your love by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, that by simply believing in him we can have eternal life. It is a picture of judgment, for you will judge evil, you will judge sin, and you judged all sin on the cross when that sin was imputed to Jesus Christ and he paid the penalty for sin, so that the issue now is not sin, the issue is trust in Jesus Christ. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life, unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would use this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All they have to do is trust in Jesus Christ, and they will have eternal salvation. At the instant of trust in Christ, God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, declares you justified, regenerates you, and gives you eternal life. This life can never be taken from you. Fathers, believers, we pray that we might be encouraged by your plan. We know that your plan is perfect and that that plan will eventually culminate in an extremely uh, destructive judgmental time on the earth known as the tribulation and that if we are living near that time then we would see things deteriorate as the stage is being set for the end times whether it occurs this year next year or in several decades from now but our trust is in you we pray for our nation we pray for this election we pray that those who are socialistic and marxist in their leanings Those who would destroy freedom would be defeated at the polls, and we pray that those who will uphold freedom, those who will uphold the freedom of believers to freely proclaim your word, the truth of your word in every area of life, would be elected, and we pray that our freedoms might continue for the purpose of preaching the gospel and the purpose of supporting Israel as your chosen people. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.